This morning we come to a psalm that is a strong contender for the most beloved psalm in the whole book. And you might easily say, this is the one I love most. And fair enough, many would join you. It is certainly among the most familiar psalms, even, even for people largely unfamiliar with the Bible. Language from this psalm is in the air of things that they attend. Funerals they attend. Weddings they attend. This is a psalm memorized by children and by adults. And it has been loved throughout the history of the church. There was a clergyman in the 1800s named Henry Beecher. And Henry shared his thoughts about this particular psalm. He says this psalm has charmed more griefs to rest than all the philosophy in the world. He says it has comforted the noble host of the poor. And it has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation into the heart of the sick. Of captives in dungeons. Of widows in their griefs. Of orphans in their loneliness. He says, dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated by its light. This psalm has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. Beecher's right about these things and many more we could say of the beauty and power of this psalm. Its poetic imagery is moving, it is assuring, and it is strengthening. The psalm is brief, it's only six verses, but it is profound in its depth and beauty. The authorship is noticed in the superscription, it is once again a psalm of David. Here Israel's king has written these six verses for us to study today. And the familiarity of the psalm is a good thing. Because the content of the psalm has no doubt at some point been meaningful to you. Familiarity can also inhibit us from seeing things we haven't noticed. We can be so used to something that it doesn't stand out to us in some cases what is there all along to observe. So today, our goal is to increase our familiarity with the psalm. And perhaps to see things that we haven't reflected much on before. The placement of the psalm alone is intriguing. Because it's preceded by a suffering psalm. We spent a couple weeks in Psalm 22, didn't we? Thinking about the agonies and the suffering and the lament of David in that psalm. So Psalm 23 is preceded by a psalm of entrenched grief and affliction. This psalm is also followed by Psalm 24, which is a psalm of vindication and triumph. We should notice then not just the content of Psalm 23, but its placement. Psalm 23 is a psalm of trust, for this psalm, psalmist has already recounted for us great and deep affliction he has faced. We could notice a progression in a journey the psalmist is on. Notice in Psalm 22, he opens with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not how Psalm 23 opens. Psalm 23 opens, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And this psalm that we see today in verse 3 talks about, or in verse, uh, in verse uh, 5 rather, talks about the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me. No, it's in verse 4. I would eventually get it. There's only six verses. I've eliminated two of them. Verse 4 is the one. <laughs> verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But this valley is followed in Psalm 24 by a hill. 
Not only is the valley that which the Lord is with his people through the question in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 23 is a psalm of trust, and it's couched between reflections of affliction and triumph. We see this psalm in two parts. Psalm 23 has two pictures that will form these parts. Verses 1 to 4, the Lord is the shepherd for his people. And in verses 5 to 6, the Lord is the host for his people. A table is spread. A house forever that someone is welcomed into. The Lord is the shepherd and the Lord is the host. Now, the brunt of the psalm and our memory of it and our love for it probably leans more toward the picture of the Lord as shepherd. But I just want to notice that that's not the only picture in the psalm. There are two pictures of the Lord. One is as shepherd and one is as host, and they both together are quite powerful. The Lord as shepherd, verses 1 to 4. It's an opening claim. The Lord is my shepherd. This is not an opening question. It is a pronouncement. And the Lord is not just compared to a shepherd in the Psalms. In fact, the psalmists love to tell us what you could think of the Lord in light of. Psalmists compare the Lord to a rock and a fortress and a shield and a refuge. The psalmists love pictures for our brains to think about. And the psalmist says, the Lord will hear He is my shepherd. There's an image for you. And this metaphor of God as a shepherd doesn't appear here for the first time in the Bible. The earliest reference to the Lord as a shepherd is in the first book of the Bible. Near the end of Genesis, we find the earliest reference depicting God as a shepherd. And the scene is nearing the death of Jacob. He has sons and grandchildren that he's going to bless, and he's blessing his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis chapter 49. And in Genesis 49, Jacob says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, this God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So as he's going to make blessings and pronouncements for his progeny, Jacob describes God as a shepherd, but not a shepherd who works part of the week and part of those days of the week. Instead, the shepherd who has been to that very day, all Jacob's life long, the shepherd he can pray to and rejoice in. That earliest and foundational metaphor of shepherd in Genesis is something that is carried on by the people of God who look to to the one who has redeemed them as the God protecting, guiding, and defending them. Those seem to be the notions that shepherd is meant to convey in our minds. The metaphor has notions of guidance, because that's what shepherds do. They've got sheep, they're going to guide to a location. They're going to protect their sheep because the sheep are vulnerable in and of themselves. There are threats all around. And the shepherd is going to make sure as he guides his sheep, there's not only guidance and protection, but care, provision. The the sheep have need. And the good shepherd knows what his sheep need and know how to guide them to the place of his provision. 
Those notions of protection and guidance and care seem to be what we should think about with the shepherd term from Genesis forward in the Bible. And consider the author of this psalm. Doesn't David have some personal experience with shepherding? I mean, if you looked at David's resume as a young man, he's the youngest of his siblings. Samuel comes to him in 1 Samuel 16. David is outside shepherding the sheep. This is David's own personal role as a young man. And David later becomes king. We might say he stopped shepherding sheep and then started shepherding people. In around 1010 BC, David reigns for 40 years over the land of Israel. In 2 Samuel 5, it is announced. In the decades of his reign, those 40 years, he is a shepherd. A shepherd of a nation. In the ancient world, writings love to connect for us the metaphor of shepherd with the leader of the group, the leader of the people. This was the case even in Egypt. Their Pharaoh was considered not just a king, but a shepherd of Egypt. The Israelites would know what it was for God to be their shepherd, wouldn't they? They had experienced in their own history his guidance. Didn't he take them out in the mighty exodus? There they were entrenched in the bondage of Egyptian captivity. And God guides them out with pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He protects them. Think of the grand story of the Red Sea and the many signs and wonders that would follow that. Where the Lord's protection and defense of his people conquered the foes that would rise against them. What about care? Well, not just guidance and protection. His care is noticed because he feeds them with manna every morning. And he guides them even in miraculous provision of water in the desert. So that when they are heading toward the inheritance he has delivered them for. He is a faithful shepherd for them. David knows not just personally in his background. But also nationally as an Israelite. The Lord is a shepherd. He doesn't just speak of a national reality though. It's very personal for David in this first line. The Lord is my shepherd. He could say the Lord is our shepherd. That wouldn't be wrong. But he is going to make clear that he understands this reality is certainly the case for him as an individual. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. It means to have need or desire for need that would be left unattended. I shall not want means I shall not be in a case then or a situation that with God being my shepherd, that he would not know what I need and how to provide. In verse 1, the I shall not is in view of the pronounced reality of who God is. You might say the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. He's basing that second statement in the first, his I shall not. It means most positively, I have from the Lord what I need. And that's, not, and that's because the Lord is not a derelict shepherd. He, he's not an incompetent guider and provider. The Lord is not an inadequate defender. In fact, because of who the Lord is, as this mighty shepherd, not just for the nation, but also for David as an individual, David says, I shall not want he illustrates here with this shepherd picture, God has abundantly supplied for his trusting people. In verse 2, what this shepherd does makes sense with a view of sheep. Sheep need places to feast, places to drink, 
And God as a faithful shepherd is going to guide his sheep where they should go. In verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As we continue in these first four verses of the God as shepherd picture, you have what you might call physical and spiritual provision in view. We think very much physically of lying down in green pastures, lying beside still waters. Your mind can picture that. You might be hoping to do that sometime this summer, uh, but, or if not already. But here in verse 3, we know that it's not just a, a material earthly aspect to this language. He restores my soul, speaks to the depth and inner life of the individual. We have then physical and spiritual provision that's in view. The sheep need nourishment. And the image of green pastures and still waters points toward the deeper spiritual provision and liveliness and vitality that is found in knowing God. In fact, shepherds know that for their sheep, green pastures are preferable to dry ones, barren ones. Because green pastures are going to supply the kind of food the sheep need. The shepherd isn't looking at green pastures And pastures of other color and having to flip a coin to figure out which one he wants to go to today. It's green pastures all the way. That's what the shepherd wants for his sheep. Still waters? Well, what is the alternative there? Still waters, I think, are contrasted with raging waters. Sheep are notoriously not always doing what's going to be in their best interest. If you've been around sheep, you know they're like this. And still waters... Is to, is to invite the sheep towards something that would not be a danger to them. Like would be a flowing, raging stream or river. Okay, That's not what the sheep want to get wrapped up in. Their very lives are going to be at stake. All of this is the work of God. Do you see David insisting on you seeing it this way? He makes me lie down. He leads me beside So how is it that the sheep have come upon green pastures and still waters? It's not because they have the inward compass that directs them, but the Lord who loves them. It is the love and care and protection and guidance of God that results in the sheep going where they are. Feeding in green pastures is the ideal. Still waters is the preference. Now you you might look at this and you think, okay, lying down in green pastures... Lying down versus eating? This is probably lying down after eating. Uh, Not because the sheep would go to green pastures because that's where they would prefer to lie down and then they get up and go eat elsewhere. We're probably looking at the post-dinner scene here in our minds. Lying down in green pastures means I think the sheep have eaten and been satisfied and they are secure enough in the presence of their shepherd to lie down for a while. There is a Abundance and a satisfaction and now rest that's meant to be implied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This means the provision is there. The satisfaction has been experienced. The abundance has been received by the sheep. And they lie down under the care and love and guidance and protection of their shepherd. They lie down for rest. And the presence of green pastures and still waters tells us the shepherd knows what he's doing. He's trustworthy. We have to preach this to ourselves because it's not always abundantly clear to us that in our lives and in the conditions and circumstances in which we find ourselves by the providence of the Lord, 
That this would be, in the big scheme of things, the direction our lives should go as the Lord makes all things work for our good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We must remind ourselves biblically that the shepherd is trustworthy and that these green pastures and still waters confirm for us that He knows what He's doing. They didn't just stumble upon luscious territory. The reason they're beside still waters and lying in green pastures is they have a good, faithful shepherd. But we know that this imagery of waters and pastures is indicating something more than just a physical provision. Look in verse 3. He restores my soul. And the Psalms are interested in your inner life. They're interested that in your heart you would come before the Lord, turn to the Lord and not from Him. That you would call out to God and not to idols. That you would worship and praise the living God. Restores my soul reminds us of earlier in Psalm 19 where this language was used. In Psalm 19, this part of the psalm in verse 8 of Psalm 19 is meditating on the special revelation of the scriptures and the role the Bible has in the hearts of his people. And it says in Psalm 19.8, David writing that the word of the Lord restores the soul. And God restores the souls of his people by faithfully sending and ensuring the blessing of his words and promises to strengthen us as we are weary and weak. In other words, still waters, green pastures, that is what this is. And we, in various circumstances of life, are guided into what nourishes and restores, strengthens and renews the words of the living God for the souls of his people. We can say in a deeper sense here that God restores the souls of his people by having faithfully given us his words and promises which he does not abandon but fulfills strength he has pledged to provide and does promises he says to keep and covenants that have been formed and he is faithful. In other words, let us be those seeking to follow the faithful shepherd. Let us be those who attend to the words of God, who open up the Bible and who long for our souls to be strengthened and renewed because we know that a function of the word of God, that his laws and precepts, his principles and wisdom have an effect on the souls of his sheep because apparently we find ourselves in situations where we need to be restored. The word restore means to bring back vigor of life, as one writer put it. There's been a draining of life for some reason. And we need restoration in the soul. That the inner condition of your soul needs renewal. That is such a human experience, isn't it? In fact, you might... You might identify that with that quite a lot this morning, having come into this place maybe very wearied down and in much need of a soul restored. He says here, not only David says he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's connected here is not just the restoration of the inner life of the person, but also the direction of their feet on a particular path. And that these things go together. That there is a following after the Lord, a heart love and posture toward God of renewed strength and life, that we might walk 
in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The paths that are right. So if we were to reword this, paths of righteousness are the paths that are the right ones. They are the ones that reflect the character and wisdom of God. Because all God's ways are righteous ways. All his will is good and perfect and right. He is perfectly just and purely righteous with no unrighteousness in him. And this means the paths he directs his people on will always be what we would call righteous ones. So when he leads his people and guides them and renews them by his blessed word, they are guided in paths of righteousness. Which means the sheep follow the shepherd. I was listening to a pastor yesterday press this home to his people in a particular sermon from a different text. It applies to our verse this morning because he was observing how many professing Christians might consider themselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they do not see any urgency, importance of actually following Christ as a disciple. And so they have a category in their mind that I am a Christian, just not the kind that follows Jesus. And what I want you to see, not just from this psalm of how the Lord guides his people, those who are his people, but also in the whole of the scriptures, the principle is well established that the people who follow Christ show themselves to be the ones who are trusting him as their refuge. In other words, those who are the sheep follow the shepherd. That's how you identify them. If you found sheep following some other shepherd... You would not think to yourselves, those sheep probably belong to that guy over there. No, you would notice that where the sheep are going and who they're following demonstrates the one they belong to. Because that's the path they're on. Here you have David saying, God restores me and leads me. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Which means that as God strengthens his people and guides his people, he does it for his glory. For his namesake, for the sake of his name. God here in this passage is being depicted as one that the whole of the Bible depicts. That in all of God's saving deeds and mighty acts and wonders, he does so for the glory of his name. That his name might be exalted and praised and cherished, treasured and proclaimed, heralded and delighted in. That for the sake of God's name, he strengthens and guides his people. You say, well, wait a second. I benefit from that too. He also does it for my sake. Yes, this is not at the expense of any benefit we accrue. Of course, it is for our good benefit of soul that we are restored, strengthened, and guided by God. But he does so, even blessing us for our own good, for his name's sake. So even the salvation of his people, which certainly benefits his people as they are brought from death to life and darkness to light, the end goal, the end goal of God showing mercy to sinners is for his name's sake. Doing all that he does for the glory of God and we would not want it any other way. We would not want God exalting over all things anything other than the one most worthy. And that means God in all that he does is making a name for himself and rightly so. The last part of the picture of God as shepherd is in verse 4. Because the shepherd knows that not all the journey of the sheep 
look like green pastures and still waters, sometimes verse 4 is the experience. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the writer is taking us from what seems to be a very luscious um, circumstance and condition with green pastures and still waters to a condition that seems threatening. The valley of the shadow of death would certainly seem that way. We know life is full of hazards and temptations and snares and wickedness. And the darkness of the valley in the ancient world was fraught with dangers. Flash floods could prove deadly. The lack of light in deep valleys could prove very disorienting for travelers. You add to that the danger of animal predators, the threat of human bandits, These who could pose threats to people going through the valley. What does the king acknowledge here? Even though. I really think that opening of verse 4 is important. Even though. He doesn't just say, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, even though that's the case, here's what I want to focus on. In other words, the main idea isn't the valley. It is the presence of the Lord with the psalmist. That's his main takeaway in verse 4. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, even though that's the case, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The king is acknowledging the presence of the Lord with him in the dark and difficult place. And it is the case with the emotions of the psalmist from time to time and in the human condition at large throughout the ages up to now. That when we find ourselves in the dark and difficult place, we would wonder about the presence of the Lord. And the psalmist here in verse 4 therefore provides helpful instruction for us. That even though there is the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The psalmist doesn't end up in the valley because the shepherd is not with him. The shepherd is with the psalmist through it all. God has not abandoned him in the valley. He does not say, why have you forsaken me? The valley is not where God guides us up to and says, well, you know, after all, this is the valley. You know, good luck to you, son. Instead, the God who makes David lie down in green pastures, the God who leads him beside still waters, is the same God guiding him through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, therefore, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. That is his assurance. The presence of the darkness does not negate the presence of God. The difficulty of the valley does not undermine the goodness and plan of God. Instead, the psalmist reminds himself and says to the Lord, you are with me. We have to remind ourselves of this. The Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. He has not abandoned me. He does not forsake his people. He is faithful. And even in this Even in whatever that is filling in the blank. Even in this, I can trust him. I can trust him. I I, I can trust him not just in most things. I can trust him not just with most valleys. I can trust him with every step. Green pasture, still waters. Valley of the shadow of death. He is with me. 
In fact, the very instruments of the shepherd are brought up, aren't they, at the end of verse 4? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are shepherding tools. The, the rod there would be the rod to ward away animals. The staff would be that which the sheep are directed with. The rod and the staff, therefore, the guidance and protection of the Lord symbolized with those instruments. The psalmist reminds himself with these pictures, the Lord is a faithful shepherd with me in the dark valley. That's why David says, I will fear no evil. Because it would be understandable for fears to crop up and dominate. After all, it is a dark valley. It's called here the valley of the shadow of death. But knowing what he knows about the presence and the faithfulness of God, he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In other words, the valley would be the place evil lurks. But David says, I'm going to challenge the presence of fear by reminding myself of the presence of God. And that the presence of God would be an assurance. If we remind ourselves that the Lord knows, as a shepherd would know, that is faithful and good, the Lord knows what he is doing with his sheep. And if the shepherd takes the sheep through dark valleys and the shepherd knows what he's doing, then the shepherd must know something we do not. That from his perfect perspective and all seeing wisdom and graciousness and plan for our lives to work all things for our good, the shepherd must know this valley leads to what I want my sheep to go to, and therefore they go through this valley toward what is on the other side of it. The shepherd does not take his sheep to the valley because the valley is permanent. The valley is not what is permanent. The valley is what doesn't last. The valley is what is temporary. The valley... For the good shepherd, he does not lead his sheep to the valley as if the valley is the destination. It is not. The shepherd can be fully trusted for the entire journey, leading his sheep through the valley. Isn't that what the language says? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley is not his home. He's heading there. He's heading there, but the valley's not that. He's going through the valley of the shadow of death. And who is with him in the valley of the shadow of death? The Lord is with him in the valley of the shadow of death. As the faithful shepherd to guide and care and defend. And therefore he says, I am comforted. Comforted in the dark valley. Can it be such a thing? Comforted in the difficult trying and hard circumstances of life. Because of the goodness and the wisdom and the presence of God with his people. Can it be? That in the midst of the valley, we can find a comfort and a peace that surpasses all understanding, Paul says in Philippians. It is, a, it is a peace that cannot be grounded in circumstances. These are not the desirable circumstances in verse 4. But better to be in the valley with the Lord than not in the valley without Him. The presence of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord... The wisdom of the Lord. This is a comfort to David in the valley. Not only is the Lord portrayed as a shepherd, he is portrayed as a host. The second and last part of the psalm, the briefest part of the psalm in verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. 
My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The valley is not the destination. The house of the Lord forever. That sounds like the destination. And this picture of a table in verse 5 is an image of fellowship. That's what people did when they set up tables. They set up tables to commune with others. That fellowship and communion, that the delights and joy of relational give and take, and that kind of dynamic could be established with table fellowship. This, in verses 5 and 6, is the hospitality of the Lord. Behold it with me. Here is the hospitality of the Lord. You prepare a table before me. The last part of that line might seem surprising, right? Before me, this table is prepared in the presence of my enemies. We're reminded that going through the valley is indeed the place where there are threats and snares and temptations and antagonists. But these antagonists shall not conquer the people of God. We are more than conquerors in him who loved us. We heard this from Romans 8 earlier this morning. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We cannot be separated from the love of God. He has declared us righteous and none shall overthrow God's verdict for his people. Therefore... When the table is prepared in the presence of my enemies, I lean toward those interpreters who view these as the defeated. The enemies vanquished, evil overthrown. These are not enemies who are trying to come up to the people of God to deceive and use this table fellowship to prevail over them. Instead, this means the enemies are no threat to the people of God. And that the people of God, for the Lord's own doing here, have a table where they are fellowshipping with God. And the enemies are not waiting patiently until we finish our meal to resume their attacks. This is picturing the comfort of the people of God and the defeat of the enemies of God. So that to eat in front of the presence of enemies means no threat to us at all. The valley was the place of vulnerability and danger. And the enemies of David have not overcome him in the valley. The Lord is with David. The table in the presence of his enemies is a picture of vindication. And the lavish provision is clear, isn't it? Not just a table. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So you have two things that are being poured, don't you? Oil is being poured and a drink is being poured. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. With the pouring of these two things, how is lavishness displayed in the hospitality of the shepherd, the host? Anointing my head with oil, as David says it, might naturally make us think of, well, David as an anointed one, as a king. He is set apart as a ruler, having been anointed for his coronation as king. That would be one way to take anointing oil and the application of it in the scriptures, the Old Testament. There is another way to take it that I think has stronger evidence and that this is not about the anointing for coronation at all, but something that takes place in a scene of hospitality, which is the scene we're in. In the ancient world, a host could provide anointing for the heads and hands of their guests. Because someone who's traveling the path comes likely as a weary and smelly guest to your door, yes, and you welcome them into your home from their journey on the road and you provide for them anointing oil. And this oil has a fragrance, a scent to it that covers over the smell so that a loveliness fills the room. 
When he says here, you prepare a table before me and you anoint my head with oil. He, the host, is receiving his people into his presence for fellowship and communion and lavishing what is lovely and desirable upon his people because we are those who have come to dine with the Lord. You anoint my head with oil as one who is the welcomed guest of the king. In other words, here David recognizes, recognizes a greater king than the king of Israel in an earthly sense. Here is the heavenly host. This table in the presence of the enemies and an anointing of my head with oil. This anointing with oil then is not about the coronation of David. It is about the perfuming and granting of loveliness to the guest from their weary travel. And then, this is not a miserly table, is it, in verse 5? My cup overflows. The cup, we're picturing there what is naturally, in a literal sense, that which is held by the guest at the table to rejoice over with food and drink. My cup overflows is a way of saying what the Lord has given to me to receive is overflowing in abundance. It is satisfying. It is more than enough. King David is describing being in the presence of the Lord here as receiving lavish blessing and grace. A bountiful experience indeed. And he believes that he was not just made for this occasionally, but that what God has for his people, that he welcomes them into will be forever their life with him. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy are being personified here as something that pursues. So here you are, and behind you, what's coming up behind you? Goodness and mercy. What does that mean, though? Well, goodness and mercy are terms in the Old Testament that are covenant terms. Sometimes mercy is translated steadfast love, which talks about the steadfast covenant love of the Lord. Goodness and mercy are being personified here as pursuing us. It really simply represents the covenant faithfulness of God as God pursues his people in covenant. Goodness and mercy pursuing you is another way of saying God not only leads us, he's not only with us, God pursues us, and we are a people surrounded by and lavished with his covenant faithfulness. How many days of my life will this be true for me in Christ? Well, all of them. All my days. So tomorrow, what is it that will be true for me? And Tuesday and Wednesday, what is it that will be true all the days of my life in Christ Jesus? That the Lord goes before me, is with me, and pursues me with His covenant love and faithfulness. And there's no better news than that in Christ. That is the most comforting and assuring thing because that outlasts all our earthly sufferings. Because he says here at the end, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And there was no priest in a tabernacle or later the temple who just stayed in the house of the Lord. You know what they didn't build for the tabernacle? Chairs, couches. You know what wasn't behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant was? A stool for resting and sitting. No, no, no. There is no sitting furniture, no cots and beds. 
There was not a staying in the house of the Lord forever. The priests would faithfully mediate the offerings of the people of God at the bronze altar outside the house of the Lord. And they would go into the house of the Lord to the holy place. And then behind the veil, the high priest would go once a year on the day of atonement. But make clear in our minds, they did not go and stay in the house of the Lord forever. So that means that those shadows and those earthly institutions and sanctuaries were foreshadowing the grander thing we were all made for. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever is something that no one in the Old Testament could have lived out in an earthly sanctuary. But in Christ and in the age to come, it is our everlasting life with him. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. That was what was desirable because the house of the Lord in the Old Testament symbolized his glory and his presence. So that as one ascended the hill of the Lord, from Psalm 24, as one drew near to the house of the Lord or the sanctuary, we were mindful of the presence of God and the holiness of God. And in Christ Jesus, we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is a way of saying that the life God has for his people, depicted with this Old Testament sanctuary imagery, the life we have is everlasting communion and fellowship with Him. We were made for this in Christ Jesus. We will have it age upon age without end. Christ came to be the shepherd who takes us home. In His earthly ministry, we even hear Him making several claims about Himself, I am statements, one of which has to do with this role, doesn't it? In John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. There's His claim right there for all to hear. I am the good shepherd, he says, and later in that chapter, in verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, those are some promises to wake up every day to, aren't they? Promises to go to bed every night under. Those are promises that govern all the days of our lives. Follow the Lord. He's given us life in Him. We shall not perish spiritually. Jesus will shepherd His people. He will restore their souls. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, some of the things Jesus did calls to mind the very work of a shepherd. In Mark 6, Jesus' disciples, they go to this desolate region. And a great crowd comes and Jesus has compassion on them. And Mark tells us why he had compassion on them. In Mark 6, it says to Jesus, they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he moves toward them as sheep who need a shepherd. And then with the application of the word of God, it didn't look like maybe abundant provision was there. But he began to teach them many things. You see, here was the king in their midst teaching them about the kingdom and the way of life and wisdom. He began to teach them and nourish them. And they didn't even realize what was happening. He is shepherding them and restoring their souls. In Mark 6, he even even has them sit down in groups. And in Mark 6.39, they sat down on the green grass. Let's say he he had them come to green pastures. And they're lying down on the green pastures listening to the shepherd king. And then he miraculously provides for them. There's fish and bread that are multiplied and they all ate and were satisfied. They were ready to lie down in green pastures. He had given them so much. Right there in that region, he had led them to green pastures, satisfied their hearts and souls, and prepared a table before them with overflowing cups. This is what Jesus has come to do. He is 
the good shepherd. He doesn't just claim it. He shows what he means by that. And then he says in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. It seems that to protect us everlastingly, to ensure our spiritual care, what would happen is that our defender would be as our substitute upon the cross. All of the accusations legitimately leveled against us, he would bear all our sin and shame, our transgression and condemnation in order to lead us out of the valley of corruption and sin and death. He would be forsaken for us. We have, in other words, the faithful shepherd laying down his life. My friends, Jesus is a trustworthy, faithful shepherd. He says to his disciples, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he takes the cup of judgment so that we might take the cup that overflows with life. He says, here's this cup. Receive me. Take me. Trust me. Look to me as your refuge and hope. Christ is trustworthy and faithful because he is full of goodness and mercy. There are some I statements of Psalm 23. And in Christ we can say them all. In Christ we can say in verse 1, I shall not want. In verse 4 we can say, I will fear no evil. And in verse 6, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Christ I shall not want. I will fear no evil. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray.